Hello, everybody, and welcome to Detect and Protect, the Australian Biosecurity Podcast, brought to you by the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment. Our podcast series is all about educating everyone about biosecurity in Australia, which is vital to ensuring the safety of Australia's agriculture and environment. My name is Steve Payos, host of the podcast, and today's episode is an exciting one. It's all about the department's biosecurity detector dog team. Now, the detector dogs and their handlers play a vital role at our airports and mail centres, helping to ensure that biosecurity risk items like food, plants and meat do not arrive with incoming passengers or in mail items. Now, joining me today is Colleen and Jeff from the team. Jeff and Colleen, thank you both very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Steve. Thanks very much for joining us. As I mentioned, looking forward to having this great discussion with you both. And uh, I believe I'm going to hear some very interesting things today. And I'm sure that all of our listeners out there will will also hear about some of the really interesting and perhaps not so well-known things that happen at our borders. I know that we've seen plenty of reality television over the years about airports and that sort of thing. But the beauty of this is, is for us to really hear firsthand from our most important representatives on the ground, which are you both. So thank you very much again. The first question I'd like to ask both of you is how did you get into working uh, with the detector dog team? Um, thanks Steve. I actually started back with the department as a biosecurity inspections officer in um, Brisbane airport so I used to come to work every day and see the dogs doing their thing searching passengers and finding some amazing items. Um, when the opportunity arose for a position as a dog handler in the team I jumped at the opportunity I got selected for a course and I attended a six week course here in Brisbane and later became a dog handler. And I've been there, I was a dog handler in Brisbane for about um, four years before I got up into the ranks of training. And I have never looked back. It has been the most rewarding and satisfying career path of my life. So if it wasn't for working at the airport and seeing those lovely dogs doing their things, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's magnificent to hear, Colleen. Magnificent. Jeff, tell us about your experiences. Look, I was um, silly enough to be a professional dog trainer for about 10 years before joining the department <laughs> as a dog handler um, back in the dark ages. And from there, I was lucky enough to progress through a variety of roles, um, both with, with the detector dogs and with a whole host of different areas within the department. Um, it was only the last couple of years with the opportunity to come back um, and form a part of the, the national team arose. And um, again, I leapt at it. I guess the, the training dogs was always my first... Uh, love and um, a really rewarding and challenging role. So I was all over it. That's so good to hear. I mean, job satisfaction like that is, is absolutely fantastic. And it's something that so many people really strive for in their careers and life. So to hear that both from you is something that it's putting a smile on my face. That's great <laughs> to hear. And and as they say, I mean, they say that 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 dogs and our canine friends are, you know, man and woman's best friends. So, you know, in that respect, is that is that Add, must add to the experience as well, knowing that you're working with such beautiful animals that you can create that bond with as well. Is that what it's like? Oh, 100%. I tell you what, every time the dogs find something that, and you're working them, it is such a joy to reward the dog and just have fun with them. It's, it's like utterly, completely satisfying. No, that's fantastic to hear. That's really, really good. How Can you tell us both how the dogs are selected? How do we go about as a department picking uh, the dogs that we use uh, for this role? Sure. Um, the training team, we travel down to Melbourne um, and see 
the Australian Border Force Breeding Centre down there. They supply our detector dogs to us. So we'll have a number of dogs available for us to choose from. And so we run all those dogs through a series of exercises. Um, those exercises, we tailor make them to assess the dog's um, hunt, food and retrieve drive. So we want to make sure that we're choosing dogs that have that basic instinctive desire to actually go out and hunt, like do a basic search. And obviously we want dogs that thoroughly enjoy food and a good game of tug of war. So if they <laughs> have awesome. those and if they're nice, fit and healthy, yeah, they're perfect for us and we bring them up to Brisbane for a course. So I guess the overall thing for us when we're looking at our, our dogs that we select, you heard myself and Colleen both talk about how much we love our job and get so much reward out of it. Um, we actually need even more enthusiasm about work from the dogs that we pick. So that's the primary thing that we're looking for is dogs that love to do the tasks that we're asking them because that's you know, how we motivate them. Um, so we're really looking to see that they, you know, the dogs that are suitable to perform the work for us are the dogs that just love doing that sort of work and we can't really stop them from doing it. Um, and that they're also nice and sound and secure and we can, you know, they'll interact with the public safely and those types of things as well. But that, that big overall thing is that the dogs really love doing the work. Um, they sort of nominate themselves very quickly when we start doing a selection process. You can see which ones are jumping up and down ready to go. So without sounding too uh, APS formal, is that sort of part of the, that's how your sort of selection criteria is determined, I guess. You have those prerequisites which you can see. Is that, you're making it sound like it's quite easy to identify. Is that generally how it is? It is quite genuine. You can see the interest from the dogs and they're sort of pretty easy to pick straight away who you're gonna, who you're gonna go after. Oh yeah, you, you know that when a dog comes out and it's hunting like it's been doing it all its life, you go, I want you on my team, that's the dog. Other ones that come out and they no, I don't have that much of a desire, uh, you, you can probably guess that they're not going to make it. <laughs> so yeah, we want those ones that really love what they're doing. It's a, it's a really interesting question because um, the, the, the standout dogs, the ones that are 100% going to be successful, really do identify themselves really quickly. Um, but then there's uh, those dogs are rare, I guess, is the point. So not every dog is, is 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 that big of a standout. So that doesn't mean that they're not suitable. It means we have to work a little bit harder. And we're actually doing quite a lot of work at the moment around improving the way we select those dogs so that the ones around the margins are actually more successful. Because as you can imagine, it takes a lot of time and investment to train a dog. Um, so the higher the success rate, the better all around. So but it's, it's a, a good area that we're actually focusing on at the moment. So. That's incredible. That really is incredible to hear. And it, it's, it's, it's making me really think about the way that human characteristics, when you're in an interview, for example, or you're in a position where you're striving for something, it shows that, you know, these beautiful animals have that too. And some might be, you know, fantastic at the, at the job, but a little bit shy to get it out there. So that would also come back to your ability to pick them out there. And that's, that's something that's magnificent. So that's so great to hear. Um, when it comes to the actual uh, dogs themselves, uh, Colleen and Jeff. Um, why do we use labs instead of beagles? Sure, well, um, we source our dogs from Australian Border Force, so they're readily available for us and they've been purposely bred for the exact work that we're using them for, so detection work. Um, it's a lot easier to source these dogs, obviously, from them than in the past sourcing beagles from pounds or from other breeders. So it's definitely um, readily accessible is great for us. Certainly. And if, you, if we come back to that um, point I just made a moment ago about um, having a high success rate with the dogs that we select, um, when we're recruiting dogs 
from um, pounds and from private breeders, etc. Um, we would probably look at a hundred dogs before we selected one for the course. And then out of the 10, if we say we selected 10 for training, only perhaps two or three of those might've gone through the final program. Um, and what we also found was those dogs were much more likely to retire early due to behavioral health problems, those types of things. Um, since we've made the switch to the purpose-bred labs um, out, of, out of Australian Border Forces program, um, we have a much higher success rate of the dogs that, that selected the course now pass, so well in excess of 50%, around 60 on average for the last year. Um, and the other part of that is it's now very unusual for any of our dogs to retire early. They, link, they leave, uh, live a full working life and are productive for their whole thing, so we get a good um, return on that initial investment. Um, there's also a few, um, I guess, operational reasons why we want to see um, a Labrador as opposed to a Beagle. And the, the prime one relates to the size. If you think about searching in an airport, and a large thing of, of what we, the service that dogs provide at airports is um, on-body detection. So people with items strapped to their person or hidden in their pockets, etc., that we wouldn't find on a manual inspection of a bag. Um, and that taller dog is able to search up much higher on a person walking past without actually climbing all over them, whereas a, a little short beagle or another breed might not be able to get that height. So there's some operational reasons as well. That's really heartwarming here as well, Jeff, uh, in terms of the way that we're really looking after their longevity as well. I think by doing that, where it sounds like what we're doing is really placing an important focus on getting that purpose specific dog that's going to do the best job for us. And I mean, that would also be adding to, you know, all of the satisfaction you get out of it, knowing that you can get a long career for, for a dog that enjoys itself and, you know, it's not going to suffer any health problems or anything like that. And like with anything, that's obviously taken some time to develop. Um, um, but that's something that, that that sounds very good to me as well. So that must be a real positive as well out of that, Jeff. Yeah, definitely. Um, the big part for us as working dogs, and people always ask me questions around you know, the welfare of the dogs, is it's really important for us. Like everyone's, we don't have anyone that's a dog handler that isn't a bit of a, a dog nut, so to speak. Um, um, so they're always well um, intentioned and very aware of the dog's welfare, but there's also the incentive is that we, you know, we've, we've invested a lot of money and effort in this animal as well, so we need to make sure we look after it and get the most out of it, um, regardless of the ethical considerations. So um, we certainly, I think the very first part of any new handler's training course is animal welfare and handling um, is the very first course that they do. So Beautiful, Jeff. That is magnificent. Uh, moving on now, Colleen, can you begin by telling us a little bit about their training now? So we've gone through the, the sort of selection process and what we're doing to ensure, you know, the best quality of, of dog and their longevity. Now, what do they go through in terms of their you know, arduous training to, to get them to the very top of, of biosecurity detection? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I know from my point of view as being one of their trainers, there's a lot of time, patience and effort put into training them and making sure we get the best out of them. And it's really enjoyable. They come up to Brisbane and they spend um, between six to eight weeks here with us in the training centre. And we focus on getting them across all our different target odours for biosecurity. And being biosecurity, we have a lot of items. So you'll hear a lot of um, detection dogs in different agencies. They're trained to find a target specific odour, so just one odour. 
Whereas our dogs, we train to find groups of odors and we're talking upwards of 200 plus items that these dogs are trained to find. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a lot. And wow. yeah, to get them across that in six to eight weeks, yeah, it takes time, but it is, uh, as I said before, it's super rewarding. Um, we've got to get our dogs to understand the difference between finding something that's a target like fresh fruit and making sure they're not responding to other items that passengers may bring through like um, bread items or cakes, pastries. Obviously cakes and pastries are insanely appetizing to any of us and that includes the dogs. So during their training course, we try and make sure that they learn the difference between what they're allowed to respond to and what they're not supposed to. Um, so they go through a lot of exercises with us. We go through replicated environments for the different areas they work in. So the airport, mail and cargo as well. So we'll teach the dogs within that six to eight weeks to search passengers, um, to search mail items, as well as even vehicles. So it's a large range of stuff that happens within that short period of time. But um, when they finish with us, they go out into the operational field and they're straight in their working environment and they're out there finding things. So in six to eight weeks, we can get a lot done, which is, I think, pretty, um, pretty special. No, that's excellent. That's really interesting stuff. And, and I've got a follow-up question on that, which I'll ask uh, in a couple of moments' time. But uh, that sounds amazing in terms of – and look, at, at the end of the day, we, we know that with, with with humans as well, we all make mistakes, and that's that's very, very forgivable. That's how it goes. And and by the sounds of everything that, you know, Colleen just mentioned to me when it comes to their training, you know, they're getting the best possible training. So um, even then, you know, you, you can expect the, the odd mistake here and there. But overall, I know that the job they're doing is, is, is fantastic. I'll come back to that follow-up question in the moment because it's going to relate a little bit more to the day-to-day -day stuff Jeff but uh, here's two questions now that I know all of our listeners are going to love I've been waiting to ask these ones the entire podcast and here we go so uh, please uh, make me laugh and, and and make me interested guys because this is going to be superb I know our listeners are going to love this what's the most common items that they detect at our airports and our mail centers now I'll preface this by saying I'm sure there's a few things you, you may not be able to talk about, but please, everything that's uh, G and PG and, and sanitised, please run away with it because I know our <laughs> listeners are going to love this. Oh, okay, well, um, now that you said that, I've got to think. No, our dogs, look, the most items that they find in those two environments actually relates to fresh fruit or um, meat products. So a lot of people try and send in meat or fruit across into the country. Um, fresh plant and seeds as well as also ridiculously high amounts, especially within the male environment. So that's people either not realising that you're not supposed to um, purchase things from overseas and get them sent to our mail centres. Um, so yeah, plants and seeds, you can buy them here in country. And so that would be your safest option to do it because our dogs will find it when it comes through. And likewise in the airport, um, the biggest common items would be your fresh uh, fruit and your meat items. So a lot of people bringing through, especially their lunch or their snacks from the plane. <laughs> like, yep. yeah, our dogs, they want that too. So they will find it and they will respond to it. And I know that uh, Jeff does have some funny finds <laughs> from, uh, <laughs> from past. The only things that I can think of that are, that are like a PG for good finds would be all the, um, the interesting meat products that passengers do bring in. So like your chicken feet, your duck tongues, 
Yeah, Even good, Colleen. Good. Chicken. This is oh, where I was. This is where I was going to kind of go with next. I mean, do you ever sort of get like a two kilo pork roast or something that comes you know through, you do. Or, yeah. or do you get, you know, you get some cooked and uncooked. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean, Jeff. That's what I mean. Please expand oh. on this. Or do you get like, do you, do you remember the old Jenny Craig game where they'd have the three kilo bag of oranges? I used to walk around with these, and do people carry that inside their jackets? I mean, I could just imagine you'd have the odd uh, funny circumstance where, we're, well, obviously here we're educating people, but and don't do that, but. I can just imagine there'd be a couple of crackers over over the over the time. You do oh, yeah. get lots lots of funny things and just weird stuff that comes through the mail that you think, why would you post that? Like raw chicken schnitzels, um, all those types of things. Um, yeah. I think the the funniest well, one that I can recall, and it was from a fair while ago now, was um, uh, I guess an elderly lady coming through the the airport, and um, the dog indicated to her. Um, I guess at knee height and I couldn't work out what was going on. And it turned out that she had um, a string tied around her waist and tied off of that waist were three or four salamis <laughs> hanging down underneath her dress. Uh, so, was it my grandmother, was it? Well, know. that was very <laughs> funny, I guess. It did have a serious bent though, because with African swine fever, it's actually a big deal for us that we of find course. that sort of stuff. Of but um, just the, 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 um, the effort people will invest and the risks they'll take to try and bring something over that, you know, we could have bought at the deli here most likely. So. Yeah. And, and that's the important thing to touch on here is that whilst we're having a laugh and that's what we want to do for our listeners is get them engaged and, and enjoying themselves. It is important to note that these things are serious biosecurity concerns. So please, 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 uh, the three month cabinossi that's around the waist, it'd be more preferable <laughs> if you found your, found your local uh, deli or butcher or even, uh, you know, whatever that might be, whoever's, whoever's making that, that'd be the best way to do that locally once you arrive. So superb, Colleen and Jeff, thank you very much for those. They were the ones I was waiting for. And there you go. Chicken schnitzels in the post, eh? Cooked and uncooked. That's superb. Please don't do that, listeners. It's important that we that we don't do that and send that stuff in the mail. Okay, moving on now, uh, guys. Once the dogs are deployed, can you tell us about a typical day in the life of a dog? And I'd like to now couple this up with the question uh, that I had as a follow-up from before. And that's about how sort of much enthusiasm and, and, and how much happiness can you see in the dog when they have that regimented lifestyle, similar to what, you know, we do when we have a working week set out, we know where we've got to be and they've got that regiment where they know they're working and then they have their time off after that. Um, do our dogs get weekends, Jeff and Colleen? Do they get to get to take leave when they're feeling a bit tired? You know, just these sort of the questions like that. I'd love to be able uh, to hear about that and for you to tell our listeners about, you know, a regular day in the life of our our wonderful dogs yeah so i guess I'll, the if i give you an overview of how a general day would go first as a starting point we might come back to those other questions absolutely because uh, they are very good <laughs> but um so generally the dog's day will start um probably about the same time their handler's day starts in that they'll be at the kennels um if it's an airport shift could be probably 5 a.m if not earlier um they'll head off to to their work location 
on arrival, they'll get a, a quick walk and a toilet. The handler will conduct a, a health and welfare check on them, give them a once-over, make sure everything's everything's right. Um, from there, they might have a little bit of free time if they're lucky, or they might just jump straight into into screening passengers. Or, or the, mo- the, mor- the morning are. the morning coffee, Jeff, before they yeah, the morning for coffee. The so if you're ever driving past an international mail centre or out the front of an international That's airport, awesome. you'll That's often awesome. see the handlers out standing on the grass. Um, performing one of the less glamorous tasks of being a dog handler with their plastic bags. Bags, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Making sure, that, and that's an important thing, you know, then we make sure the dogs get out at least for a toilet break every couple of hours. Um, and from there, it'll be screening. Um, and the screening passengers, screening mail, whatever that might be. Um, every time they get to find something, they get a reward, whether that be a biscuit or a tug-of-war game or a play. Um, and from so basically, we'll tend to work um, uh, on around a, a 50-50 ratio, if that makes sense. So the duration could be a little bit different, but as an example, they might be out working um, passengers for, say, 30-minute period, mm-hmm. um, and then they'll go and have a quick rest and a toilet break for 30 minutes while their handler processes all the seizures and does all the paperwork. Ah, great. Um, and yeah. then they'll get them straight back out and go again. So their day's quite full. Um Incorporated into that, there's probably around an hour's worth of maintenance training and, and and skill development incorporated. A lot of that occurs during live screening, but then there's also opportunity to go around and do specific exercises. Um, towards the end of the day, they'll generally get to go out for a brief walk and a bit of a, a, a stretch, have a pat, um, a grooming session um, before they head back to the kennels um, where they'll have a run in the day runs, etc before they get fed and go to bed for the night. Um, and that's, that's pretty much a day in the life of. I, I, I guess your, your, your question that really grabbed me was around the, the regimentation of the day. Um, and dogs love routine. Um, they know it back to front and they really thrive on it. They know what's expected of them. So we definitely see that. Um, certainly um, I've seen dogs that have uh, been retired for several years turn up at the kennel to stay overnight and uh, jump out of the car and run straight past 20 other dogs to their old kennel run to wow. say, let me, let me in, it's dinner time. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's like almost intrinsically burnt into their heads, Jeff. They just remember that. They remember the, the glory days of <laughs> out in yeah. the field. Yeah. And they very much, they do like that routine. They, they enjoy knowing what's about to happen next. They're probably also some of the best workers you're ever going to get because when you do meet them at the kennels or when they arrive at the airport, they're already so happy. It's like they've already had their morning coffee. They are switched on and going, okay, we're ready, let's go. And they kind of just want to hurry up the handler along because all they want to do is work. And that's great. They've got the best work ethic ever. Putting us to shame, eh? Fantastic, yeah. no, that that's so good to hear. That that really it makes me happy, really. And you, 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 I know what I'm going to be applying for next, guys. So this podcast <laughs> has been a a ripper for me now. No, that, that's fantastic. That's interesting. The um, they definitely most certainly do get weekends, but um, generally our dogs will come to work more often than their handlers, um, yep. than the single handler. Um, and that's. One, because we've got plenty of work for them, but also because that's what they really, given the choice, that's what yeah. they would prefer that's to what do. they want you know, to do, right? Yeah. They, you know, we've got nice big grassy day runs at the kennels. Um, some of them have got swimming pools 
toys, all sorts of things. Given the choice, they'll come to work. Um, and so you know, we try to avoid keeping the dogs in kennels for too long because they they get bored and they'd much rather be at work. So we'd rather bring them in and, and let them do what they like doing. It's, I guess it's the, the pet dog version of going for a walk at the park is going to work. Yep, and they love it. No, that's so great to hear. Um, can you tell us, Jeff, a bit about what they do uh, and Colleen when they're retired? So when we have those, I mean, you just mentioned that great story then about a dog that's come back to its old stomping ground and first thing you did was remember exactly where it used to be. What's the what do they do when they're retired and when it comes to that process? And I guess what is the what what and how is that decision made um, when it comes to them actually retiring? Um, yeah, well, I guess I can give you an example. Like I have my old working dog at home with me. Once he retired, he got to spend the rest of his days with me and my family. And he he was one of those dogs that he retired and he went, sweet, no more work ever again. Yeah. Entry and sat in there celebrating <laughs> and leaving a big puddle of drool, waiting yeah. for a reward at one point. And I'm like, yeah, this is all stuff you're supposed to respond to, but not at home. Um, they just have a relaxing life. Like he's the most loved pet ever. My kids absolutely adore him. Um, he's spoiled rotten now. I don't know if he would remember his work anymore <laughs> because he'd been that spoiled. But they just get to live the best life ever. So they um, tend to be retired at about eight years of age. So mm -hmm. they have a great a great time for eight years working and then they've still got plenty of time left over to to enjoy retirement, just like everyone else does when we retire. Um, but yeah, they'll, they're, they're retired only when they need to, need to be. Yeah. yeah. So you sort of get an, you get an indication of that, Colleen, if it sort of comes to a time where may, when we all, we all slow down, we all get a little bit tighter, a little bit, you know, all that sort of stuff, the fitness goes, perhaps the attention, all that sort of thing. Is that the sort of things that you look for to, to get to that point? Exactly. Yeah, we do. So again, like my um, fella that he's retired at home, he got to that point, he'd slowed down in his work and he was just getting to that that old age of, ah, oh, I'm, I'm a bit tired now. I just want to have a rest and relax and people bring me food <laughs> instead of me looking for it. And so if I could just ask a quick one of you both, what age do we get them? Do we get them at sort of like, is it one or two or even younger than that, older than that? What age do we sort of get them and what's the general lifespan of their careers? Yeah, so um, the dogs that we select, they're aged between 12 and 18 months. Okay, so great. they're quite young, very um, immature, some of them. And then, yeah, we, we have them up until about eight years, nine years of age is when we look at retiring them. Magnificent. No, that's great. A uh, couple of questions to uh, to finish off here now, Colleen and Jeff. This has been a, a magnificent podcast so far. So I hope that all of our listeners are really enjoying this. This is this is excellent in terms of the amount of information and, and how engaging it's been. So thank you both. Um, talking a little bit now about the future and the sort of changing nature of biosecurity and also the world that we're in now as well, guys, with uh, a pandemic at this present point in time. And that's obviously caused um, perhaps a bit of a, a slower work life maybe for, for some of our dogs. In, in recent times, but um, what are some of the new and innovative, excuse me, ways that the dogs are being used now? So, for example, we've had things like Carpra Beetle, like Bemis B as new things. Are they looking to be used for, for things like that and detecting that sort of stuff? Or, or what are we, we looking to do when it comes to innovation? Yeah, so certainly we've actually, innovation, I guess, is that key word. We've been lucky enough to um, have a couple of projects funded under the innovation um, program. Um, and one of those was around the, um, the detection of BMSB. So we actually got to partner up with uh, Adelaide, Uni uh, Adelaide University of New England. Mm -hmm. um, 
and develop a, a solvent extract that replicates the odour of live BMSB. So if we go back to how our dogs are trained, um, traditionally it relies on having the item that we want the dog to find so that we can present it to the dog and they can smell it and say, this is what you want. we want you to find. Um, given the risks of brown marmorated stink bug, no one really wanted to let us bring brown marmorated stink bug into the country and train with, which is fair enough. Um, so what we did was develop this this extract which replicates that odour and we were able to train dogs um, to find the brown marmorated stink bug using that. Um, they've been used on wharf at Brisbane and Perth for the last two seasons um, as a verification tool. So actually looking to, to verify that there's nothing there as opposed to finding it. Um, ah. But what they have found during that is they've found several um, freshly dead stink bugs um, so that their treatment was working. And also a couple of uh, different species of stink bugs, so very similar. So we're quietly confident that that's working quite well. Um, the other part that we've um, we've, we've looked at is um, around remote air sampling or dogs sampling um, odour that's been drawn, say, from a shipping container from an, or from another environment. So rather than having the dog actually search the actual item, we collect the odour and then the dog searches the odour at a later time and place, which allows things to be much safer. Um, a, a, a big thing that we've utilised that for has been in the use of um, a feasibility project around um, the ability of dogs to work and find um, COVID-19 infected patients. Um, wow. that's, part of a, that's part of a broader project led by the Australian Border Force um, wow, and Adelaide cool. University. Um, and that's around taking sweat samples from patients and presenting that to a dog for a later date. Um, it's still very much in the early phases. Um, nothing's been peer reviewed or published as yet, but initial results have been quite good. So That is cool. That is cool. That's that's fascinating. I mean, that's when you're talking about innovation now, Jeff, and being able to really advance our capabilities to find things and to, I mean, it's it's a it's a helpful thing anyway as well. When it comes to COVID-19, it's a little bit less about, you know, a, a punishment thing per se of, of, you know, you're bringing this in, what are you doing? You can't do that. It's about helping people now. It's about helping prevent the spread. It's about, I mean, no, one's, no one out there wants to catch COVID-19. Uh, no one out there wants to catch the flu or cold or anything like that. So that to me sounds absolutely amazing is that i mean is that something that's going to get the advancement in it i mean you know what i'm trying to say i mean we're, we're gonna it's, it's, you said it's still days, very but, early stages at this point yeah. in time so i know that's part of a there's a broad research going on all around the globe into it um and i know some countries have deployed dogs for this purpose um but at this point in time we're still looking at whether it's readily operationalized and that's a, a a big part of the collaboration with border force uh, and adelaide university is looking at can we transfer the results in a lab to a real-time environment? And that'll, that'll, I think, largely influence the success of it or not. Well, listeners, you heard it here first. Innovation at its finest here in the Australian government. That, that to me, is, is absolutely fascinating. So we'll watch this space, Jeff. So you're going to be back on in now in the next few podcasts to give <laughs> us an update on that one, mate. But all right, final question for you guys, Colleen and Jeff. Uh, what are some of the other ways that detected dogs are used across Australia? For example, um, detecting water leaks, uh, ants, our, our friends, our, our fiery ants, uh, and also koala scat, things like that. Are there ways that our dogs are used uh, in other capacities? across the country as well? 
Definitely. Not so much our dogs, if that makes sense. They're not the department's dogs, but there's a huge cohort of people training dogs around the country for a whole heap of host of purposes. Um, certainly the, the stuff that you've mentioned around water lakes, koala scat, et cetera, fall under that broad umbrella of conservation dogs. Um, and they, yeah, they're certainly used in huge different environments. The water leak stuff I've found particularly interesting in that the dog will find the source of a leak in a, a pool of water the size of a football ground will find the actual location of the leak um, just by the the odour of the chlorine in the water um, yeah, because that water's <laughs> been treated um, and they can find that spot. So instead of having to dig up 300 metres of pipeline, they just go and dig a hole in a, you know, a 10-foot radius and repair the leak. Um, I thought that was really fantastic, particularly given how big an issue um you know water security is for us in this country i'm, I'm beyond impressed with that and i'm also also exacerbated how useless i am because i tell you what <laughs> these these animals are, are so good at what they do and then that's just incredible to hear that they're so good and i just think god i'm hopeless so that's 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 brilliant that's really great keep going jeff excuse me oh and look the, the noses are really good i know um uh they use dogs for a lot a lot of um I guess two key purposes in that in that conservation field, especially, and one is identifying um, the presence of native species that might be endangered. So whether that's looking for quolls or um, bird life, etc., that might be under threat, and so they'll generally those dogs will find the animals scat and they do a survey in that regard to say, oh, this is a, an estimate of the numbers or this is where the populations are. And the other part of that is ar around identifying predators and generally introduced species such as foxes is probably a, a big, the big one. Um, and they'll understand where that, you know, where the finding fox nens, um, Lord Howe Island used dogs extensively for their rodent eradication program. Um, and they've only... They were very successful. They've just had a recent outbreak, as the rest of Australia has with rodents, <laughs> and they're using dogs again to address that. So. Much publicised, Jeff. Yes. yes. No, fantastic. But, yeah. Colleen, anything you want to add on to that one? No, just um, it's absolutely amazing to see the work that does get done around the country by um, avid dog fans, um, getting them out there and actually searching. It's making such a great use of their skill set. So it's great to see, and I look forward to seeing what happens in the future, especially with where we can go as well as a department. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said a moment ago, I can't wait to hear the follow-up on some of these things. And, and even so before, Jeff, when you touched on the fact that it's not our dogs as a department, but that sounds like they're, they're a big, big government-wide uh, cohort of, of, of wonderful dogs doing such a great job, which are trained and, and run by you know, wonderful people such as yourself. So today's stories have been absolutely magnificent. And I, I must say, um, as, as much as we're all across many items of the department and as much as we all intertwine with each other there's just no substitute for being able to hear from people who are so invested in their work and, and to get that information because you know I'm going to walk away from this and I know all of our listeners will walk away from this and go wow did that work and, and yeah if anything it might even entice a few people out there to to apply for a job or to look into that as a career because it can really see you know the happiness in both of you and, and how much great work you're doing so 
Uh, may I say on behalf of myself, uh, a big thank you to you both. Thank you very much, Colleen and Jeff, for joining us on our podcast, Detect and Protect. Magnificent stories today. I'll take away a few of the schnitzel stories and, and pork roasts and, and all the rest of it. But even so, you know, dogs that can detect, you know, a water leak on, on, on an area the size of a football field is magnificent. So my heartfelt thank you to you both for joining us on this episode. And, uh, Unfortunately, you've been so good that we're going to have to rope you in again uh, in the future for another one. So thank you very much to you both. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, Jeff. A big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into our podcast today. That was as informative uh, as we're going to get, and we're going to get plenty more of that out there for you. So please continue to subscribe and add all of the links below in our comments field. You can find more information on Australian Biosecurity on the department's website. Links will be available, as I mentioned, in the episode description. So make sure that you subscribe to our podcast series to keep up to date and learn more about Australian Biosecurity. As I mentioned, before do not bring those cabanossies over the border there's plenty of local butchers in all of our cities that can do a fantastic job a big thank you to our producers shane faulkner and sam mckeon for putting this wonderful podcast together and we'll see you again on the next episode of detect and protect